Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about ovarian cancer with Dr. Vagan Andikin. Dr. Andikin is Assistant Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a Professor of Surgical Oncology. So, Vagan, maybe you can tell us a little bit about, you know, how common is ovarian cancer and, and who gets it? This is a very common type of cancer and it counts number fifth in cancer deaths among women in the U.S. Uh, yearly, we diagnose about 25,000 patients with uh, ovarian cancer, and uh, that leads to 14,000 deaths annually. In the clinic, often I see patients when uh, they come for their well visit or other uh, issues, they're concerned and they ask me a question, how often, um, what are my odds to developing ovarian cancer? And the good number to quote, one in 80, lifetime risk of developing ovarian cancer. So so that's uh, that sounds pretty good uh, in the grand scheme of things when you think about breast cancer being one in eight, uh, ovarian cancer being one in 80, that's that's not bad. But still, ovarian cancer is a pretty serious uh, condition. Tell us a little bit more about what are the risk factors? Um, how does genetics play into ovarian cancer? Yeah, you touch very important topic of breast cancer. It's a breast cancer, ovarian cancer. They may share some similarity. They both um, reproductive organ cancers. However, ovarian cancer unfortunately has no screening, and um, breast cancer, contrary to that, have a screening option. Um, and therefore, we diagnose this cancer at later stage most often. Uh, the genetic plays very important role in uh, finding patient at risks. Um, there, was a, there was a large study done in UK that just published this year involving uh, almost uh, 1 million uh, women and unfortunately demonstrated that um, with screening available in modern era that includes ultrasound and uh, oncomarker C125, there was no reduction in death rate. That was an unfortunate study and therefore very important to bring attention to your physician if you're experiencing symptoms of uh, that could potentially be ovarian cancer. Mm, and uh, we looked at the symptoms, uh, whether they are specific or not. Most of them are non-specific, but symptom, symptoms such as uh, weight loss, uh, ALE satiety, bloating, abdominal pain, changing in your bowel habits, those are their concerning features. Uh, that they can be seen in many different conditions, even benign condition, bowel disease. But however, they are not uncommon and can be seen mostly in patients in advanced disease. In early stage disease, unfortunately, there's not a lot of symptoms. And um, an annual visit to OBGYN uh, may discover cysts or mass in ovary that may trigger additional intervention. Let's switch gears towards the genetics. Um, um, a, the large 
a study has been done in last 10, 20 years in molecular biology and discovered that uh, the genes associated with ovarian cancer that also related to breast cancer, such as BRCA genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2. In patients with those gene mutation, we often see breast cancer. However, ovarian cancer is also on the rise. About 50% of patients with BRCA1 mutation may develop um, ovarian cancer, and about 25 to 35% with BRCA2 mutation develop uh, ovarian cancer. And uh, fortunately, there is a new group of drugs available, especially for those patients. On one hand side, you may consider that um, this is a a unfortunate situation. However, on the other hand side, we have a treatment available for those patients with those mutations. So so let's pick up on that. I mean, the, the one thing that you mentioned, which was interesting, is that if you do have a BRCA mutation that tells you that you're at increased risk, that study that you quoted found that CA125 vaginal ultrasounds, they really don't reduce mortality. But you mentioned that there are some drugs that may help in patients with these mutations. So tell us more. Of course. Um, uh, within the last 5-10 years, we discovered new group of drugs. We call them PARP inhibitors. Uh, we learn more about biology of ovarian cancer, and we realized that homologous recombination, uh, it's a pathway when the, our body um, repair uh, double-strain DNA breaks. And we find out that tumors that are deficient in those uh, pathway have a harder time to repair themselves. So we're using tumor weaknesses and uh, making it even worse by adding this enzyme blockers uh, to help us to fight cancer cells. Several of the new drugs are available and approved by FDA uh, to use in patients with ovarian cancer as a first-line maintenance therapy, as a, and we use it as a therapy for um, later stage disease. We, we use in combination with systemic cytotoxic chemotherapy. They, they, we call them, as I mentioned, PARP inhibitors, and there are several, name, several approved on the market. A new study ha, has been done to discover in which sequence we should use them as a frontline or as a maintenance therapy versus uh, reserve for recurrences. A lot to be discovered within the next five, 10 years, but we're on the right track. So, so just to be clear, um, the PARP inhibitors are really for treatment of people who have an ovarian cancer, particularly if they are also carriers of BRCA1 or 2 gene mutations. What if you've been diagnosed with a BRCA1 or 2 gene mutation, let's suppose somebody in your family was diagnosed with breast cancer uh, and they were discovered to have a mutation, you were then tested, you now have a mutation, but you don't have ovarian cancer yet, at least that you're not aware of. Are there any things that you could do to prevent uh, ovarian cancer or to reduce your risk? Uh, not medically. Uh, oh, uh, that's a great question. 
As of today, we don't have medication that can potentially reverse uh, the risks and um, uh, we don't administer uh, this uh, PARP inhibition as a prophylactic therapy. The only th- only approach we use is risk-reducing surgeries. Uh, what that entails, uh, a patient uh, after completion of childbearing uh, or, or um, after age of 35 to 40, we recommend to proceed with re- risk-reducing surgery that includes removal removal of um, tubes and ovaries, that will essentially eliminate the risk of ovarian cancer. It's not going to completely decrease the risk to zero because there's still a residual peritoneal, uh, primary peritoneal cancer risk. However, it will decrease the risk of ovarian cancer close to zero. That is the best strategy for patients with um, um, ovarian cancer. And so, so if you were to opt for that and say you're, you know, you've just been diagnosed with this mutation, you're worried about ovarian cancer. So you you undergo a prophylactic uh, bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy. They remove your tubes and your ovaries on both sides. What are the side effects of that surgery and how can you circumvent those? Uh, that's a great question, Anise. It depends on age. Um, obviously, the younger the patients are, they still have um, perf- good performance and uh, ovarian function. So that uh, unfortunately, this procedure will place patient in menopausal state. Uh, with side effects such as hot flushes, m- uh, bone density problem, potentially cardiovascular disease. Uh, however, st- lo- there have been studies demonstrated um, that risk-reducing surgery actually uh, help patients live longer. Despite those side effects that may potentially compromise cardiovascular health, patients who undergo risk-reducing surgery by eliminating risk of ovarian cancer and breast cancer, they can live potentially longer. To alleviate the symptoms of uh, menopause, we use a hormonal therapy. We use non-hormonal approach as well. And uh, the therapy meant to... Uh, alleviate symptoms without interfering with other hormonally active tumor and without effect on a breast uh, as such because the, uh, the hormonal effect on uh, over on uterus and breast may be somewhat different. We have to bear in mind we potentially can uh, help with symptoms but we also do not want to hurt uh, with the breast cancer risk which is none uh, um, which as you mentioned is higher in BRCA mutation patients. Yeah, so that's a that's kind of a, a tight rope to to walk, right? To uh, eliminate symptoms as best you can while not increasing the risk of other cancers. That's correct. When we do this surgery after age of fifty, average age of menopause in North America it's about fifty two. When do when we do surgery at later age, uh, those issues um, automatically not there. However, when patient has a uh, early onset of ovarian cancer um, uh, before age of fifty, then we try to do the surgery early. In that circumstances, we do work. We do work with the patient, with addressing her symptom of surgical menopause. 
Yeah. And I suppose in a BRCA patient, the other way to reduce your risk of breast cancer, even if you were going to take some sort of hormonal therapy to offset surgically induced menopause, is to have bilateral prophylactic mastectomies and reduce your risk of breast cancer as well. But that is another show. Um, So getting back to ovarian cancer, you know, you mentioned that Um, This is often, especially in the early stages, um, something that is not easily diagnosed. It's usually presenting late. Um, So, you know, what can women do if they want to catch this early? I mean, should they be getting annual vaginal ultrasounds? I mean, but the study showed that that really didn't improve survival. Or is it just a matter of being aware of your body and and seeking medical advice when you have symptoms? Great question. Um, I think body send us signals. So when we start connecting to our body, body and mind are interconnected. And when you develop something new, something changes over the course of next uh, last couple of months, bring uh, that attention to your physician. Um, and you're not satisfied with the response, you may get uh, sick attention, sick a second opinion. Um, uh, what is very important uh, to know your family history, what your aunt died from, what your uh, cousin died from, if they discovered with uh, breast cancer, find out whether it was genetically related and you potentially can get genetically tested. I think those two things, bringing attention to symptoms and finding your genetic background will help us um, to prevent some of the cancer or at least diagnose early. That's so important. And we are going to learn more about how to make a diagnosis of ovarian cancer, how to treat this, and what are the important advances that are going on in terms of clinical research regarding ovarian cancer right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about ovarian cancer with my guest, Dr. Vagan Andikian. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital where an individualized approach to prostate cancer screening is used to determine which men are eligible and would benefit from screening. To learn more, visit YaleCancerCenter.org screening. Breast cancer is one of the most common cancers in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,500 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year, But there is hope thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and the development of novel therapies to fight breast cancer. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with the disease. With screening, early detection, and a healthy lifestyle, breast cancer can be defeated. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital, to make innovative new treatments available to patients. Digital breast tomosynthesis or 3D mammography is also transforming breast cancer screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Vagan Andikian. We're discussing the care of women with ovarian cancer. And right before the break, Vagan, you were talking about how, 
you know, it's really important for women to know their family history and to really advocate for themselves. So if they have symptoms, even if they're nonspecific, a little bit of bloating, change in bowel habit, difficulty urinating, whatever it might be, a little bit of abdominal discomfort, sometimes those might be the first signs of ovarian cancer. And it's so important to get it checked out so that we can find cancer at an early stage. So, Vagan, I want to kind of pick up there and talk a little bit about diagnosis of ovarian cancer. Now, how is it that people actually get diagnosed? So either they're going to come and present to you with some vague symptoms um, and hopefully hopefully we find things early. Um, but how is a diagnosis made? Great. So I'll take at this point, Annie, so I would grade ovarian cancer into two groups, early stage versus late stage. Usually early stage, it's an incidental finding of the cyst. Patient went to emergency room for, let's say, gallbladder problem or, or, or pneumonia, and they incidentally find a lesion in adnexa that triggered additional workup. That's a um, uh, incidental pickup that could potentially diagnose uh, ovarian cancer at early stage. Versus those patients who start experiencing symptoms, they probably already stage three and four disease. Unfortunately, there is not a good uh, symptoms um, that can uh, pick up on early stage ovarian cancer, unless the mass is so large and compressing on neighboring organs. We've seen often un- not unusual to have 20 centimeter mass in ovary and still have stage one disease. Um, in those patients uh, with early stage disease, we triage according to their age. We often offer even um, uh, fertility preservation for patients at younger age who desire future fertility and they have stage one disease. We can potentially save other ovary and give them opportunity to become mothers. Uh, for those patients who diagnose late, unfortunately, organ preservation is not an option anymore. In that case, we do a thorough workup to figure out whether the patient is a candidate for surgery versus neoadjuvant chemotherapy. One approach focuses on upfront surgery if patient comorbidity uh, allows. In cases when um, that type of surgery is not feasible due to disease distribution and or uh, patient performance status, we proceed with neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And, and, uh, yeah, our organization historically had the focus on this approach and we've demonstrated a good result with this approach and the, the national and international studies demonstrated Similarly, uh, good results with neoadjuvant chemotherapy in patients who are not a uh, candidate for upfront debulking. The whole philosophy of surgical treatment of ovarian cancer to obtain, uh, we call it no gross residual disease or optimal cytoreduction when the volume of tumor is minimal, at least less than one centimeter, ideally no gross vi- uh, residual tumor. Following that uh, surgery, we proceed with um, uh, systemic chemotherapy that includes administration of the cytotoxic drug. Commonly, we use carboplatin and paclitaxel with biologic agents such as uh, bevacizumab. 
new data came up uh, actually two years ago. A large study in Europe demonstrated the benefit of heated chemotherapy that can be administered during the surgery. That whole uh, approach called HIPEC, heated intraperitoneal chemotherapy, and is done during surgery. Patients who are uh, received neoadjuvant chemotherapy and underwent successful debulking surgery uh, receive a heated chemotherapy during their procedure and they follow on their regular therapy after surgery and recovery from HIPEC. This approach is slowly picking up the pace and the uh, Promising. The study in Europe demonstrated one year uh, survival benefit in those patients who, who underwent this type of uh, therapy. Another approach is, um, um, is uh, organ preservation. We work closely with our colleague in reproductive endocrinology, oocyte preservation, um, and the patient even may opt for um, her um, oocyte to be collected prior to proceeding with um, uh, his, uh, his surgery, removal of ovaries. That has been done successfully without adverse effect in terms of long-term survival. So so just to back up a, a wee bit, um, you know, when you talk about ovarian cancer as either being early stage versus advanced, how exactly do you determine that? So say somebody presents to you and they've got some, you know, vague symptoms. What are the tests that you will do to, first of all, find out if this is, in fact, ovarian cancer, and second, um, whether this falls into the early stage bucket or the late stage bucket. Great question. Um, uh, Anis, unfortunately, as of today, we do not have any definitive tool to know for sure whether this is ovarian cancer. So diagnostic imaging uh, broadly used today, um, CT imaging, uh, PET scans, MRI, they are not very specific. Uh, uh, and uh, surprisingly, ovary, ovarian surface itself may attract tumor from other tracts. For example, uh, stomach cancer may travel to ovary, and when you see ovarian mass, uh, but that initial cancer was originated from um, GI tract, from colon cancer. It's very important to do thorough workup, and the imaging is number one. We use oncomarkers to tailor other possible uh, diagnoses such as colon cancer, pancreatic cancer, breast cancer. Commonly used markers are CA125, CEA, CA19-9. Um, depend on the patient age, we may uh, include additional oncomarkers. Uh, very interesting that ovarian cancer has family of three cancer in one. One uh, derives from lining of the ovary, and those gives a rise to epithelial ovarian cancer. The second family derives from uh, hormonally active tumors, and those tumors may secrete certain chemicals that we can pick up on the blood and uh, and know the diagnosis uh, preoperatively. And the third group of the tumors derives from germ cells uh, responsible for building up oocytes. 
those three families of ovarian cancer may have different biology and different tests we use to diagnose before surgery. But ultimately, our diagnosis heavily relies on histologic evaluation. Uh, uh, the, what that means, so we, we perform some kind of a biopsy or surgery to take a sample to find out what type of cancer it is. Yeah. So because clearly, you know, to try to understand, you know, it sounds like the therapies for advanced cancers are very different from the the surgery for local cancer, whereas local cancers, you might even get to spare part of the ovary. In advanced cancers, we're talking about, you know, big surgeries, taking out multiple organs, you know, potentially adding in HIPEC and so on. So in other cancers, I know that we talk about doing a a core needle biopsy to get a preoperative diagnosis. But in ovarian cancer, is that the case? Or is that something that is diagnosed at the time of surgery? Uh, If if the imaging uh, um, demonstrate advanced disease and patient performance status not allows us to perform debulking surgery, in that case scenario, we proceed with new adjuvant chemotherapy. If, in that case scenario, we proceed with core needle biopsy. But if the imaging shows us um, findings and clinical picture uh, demonstrate high suspicion for ovarian cancer, in that case, we do not obtain preoperative core biopsy with concern of potential side effects, infection, and uh, in anticipation of major surgery. In patient with what we look uh, look like ovarian um, cyst, and we're not sure 100% whether it's cancers or not, we proceed with laparoscopic surgery, remove that cyst, and uh, obtain frozen section. Uh, and uh, for our listeners, frozen section, it's a tool when patients sleep under anesthesia, we perform surgery, and we ask our pathology colleague, within 20 minutes, give us an answer, whether it's cancers or not. And according to cancer, the diagnosis, we decide whether the removal of cyst is enough or we should proceed with more uh, staging type of surgery that includes removal of lymph nodes, remaining ovary and tube, uh, omentum. And so as we talk about the different kinds of therapies for, for ovarian cancer, depending on the stage, we've talked about surgery, we've talked about systemic chemotherapy. The two modalities that we haven't talked about that we do talk about a lot on this show, one is radiation therapy and the other is immunotherapy. Is there a role for either of these modalities in the treatment of ovarian cancer? What per- I'll answer a question of what pertains to radiation therapy. Uh, in the U.S., we performed study in 80s, 70s. We compared the whole abdominal radiation versus uh, systemic chemotherapy. And we demonstrated that systemic chemotherapy works better, less toxicity, less concern for bowel side effects. And we stay away from radiation ter- therapy in ovarian cancer. Select patient may benefit from radiation therapy for palliative purposes if there is a small recurrence in a bone or a small pelvic recurrence and patient is not surgical candidate, we may contemplate uh, radiation therapy, but it's uh, it's an esoteric use. We don't use a radiation therapy uh, for, to treat ovarian cancer. 
what pertains to immunotherapy it's a great question um, uh, unfortunately did not really it has a prime time yet for ovarian cancer. Current uh, therapies uh, demonstrated modest effect. We're still working on a biomarker for ovarian cancer. Um, as I mentioned uh, earlier, there are three large family of ovarian cancer, epithelial, germ cell, and sex core stromal tumor. But within those groups, there is also subdivision into high-grade serous, low-grade serous, clear cell, endometrioid, etc. So there are some group of ovarian cancers they may potentially benefit from uh, immunotherapy, but that research is still ongoing. Which brings me to probably my last question, which is, what are the most exciting advances in terms of clinical research in ovarian cancer? What do we have to look forward to? So the large ones is uh, in using or PARP inhibitions and a large number of patients uh, with this mutation. We discover uh, several other new genes that may be also affected in patients with ovarian cancer. We're trying to understand which group of the patients should receive this therapy upfront versus um, uh, at the recurrence time. So the other group of the new drugs are used for molecular uh, targeted therapy. We use uh, um, molecular studies to demonstrate certain receptors and we can potentially attach cytotoxic agents or use those um, molecular targets to new group of drugs. Dr. Vaganand Deacon is an assistant professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive sciences at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca.